Hello and welcome to this Endo Life episode 167. I'm Jessica Duffin. I'm an endo warrior, an endo health coach, and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. As always, this podcast is here for educational purposes only. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a shout out to my lovely sponsors at BU. And I wanted to tell you about their new bath bombs, which are naturally made and contain beautiful essential oils. And their peppermint and eucalyptus essential oils um, bath bomb is doing so well right now with endometriosis community. They're getting loads of feedback about it. And, you know, if you love the patches themselves you're going to love the bath bombs because essentially it's (laughs) the patch in a bath bomb um so you know if you're on your period or if you're in pain you could have a bath with some of the bath bombs or one of them I don't know you could have multiple if you want um and then yeah get out the bath maybe rub in some cbd balm and put your patch on top, which is um, what a lot of people are feeding back that they're doing. So um, I would love to do that, but um, I don't have a bath, so I can't. But if you have a bath, um, then, you know, I think these new bath bombs could be a lovely way to help alleviate some of your pain. So if you'd like to check them out, you can go to BU, which is buonline.co.uk, And you can also order them from anywhere in the world on cultbeauty.co.uk and they deliver worldwide. So before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to give a shout out to the lovely girls at Semaine. They are two sisters with endometriosis. They've been on the show before and they founded Semaine, which is a supplement company for people with periods to originally their first supplement was to aid with PMS and period pain. And I know that it is a lifesaver for so many people with endometriosis and painful periods. I absolutely love that supplement. It's really helped me when I've had to kind of follow protocols for SIBO or, you know, I've had a stressful time and I've been worried about my period. I've been able to avoid a flare with that supplement and they've always been so kind and um, kindly sent me sent me them when I when I've needed them. And now they've come out with a new supplement called the Daily, and it is a hormone balancing supplement, which is designed to help with healthy skin, stable mood, fewer cravings in your luteal phase, blood sugar balance. And they recently gifted it to me. Honestly, I said this to my client the other day. My blood sugar levels have never felt so stable as they did when I was taking that daily supplement. As you guys know, I I work very hard to stabilize my blood sugar levels because that will keep inflammation down and it also ensures that you have healthy balanced hormones. It's, It's really, really key. And I have a history of having really unstable blood sugar. Originally growing up, it was because of my eating disorder. But then in later years, it was much more down to firstly following a vegan diet when I didn't understand how to build my plate, a healthy blood sugar balancing plate. And secondly, because of my microbiome and my microbiome because of SIBO is 
built to actually extract more glucose from my food and cause blood sugar instability. This is actually a really key piece of blood sugar. If your blood sugar is resisting all of the strategies you're trying, that is a massive clue that your microbiome is affecting the way that your blood sugar is is being controlled in your body. So we need to work on that, work on your gut. And mine has improved, mine has improved massively, but I still react much more um, erratically than someone else would to blood sugar fluctuations. And I couldn't believe the difference. It was like I had a whole month of like stable blood sugar. It was incredible. And as a result, I had much more of a healthier cycle. I felt a lot more satisfied. I had less food cravings. I just felt a lot more stable in energy. So I'm a really big fan of this. And as I said, blood sugar is a huge piece to managing your hormones, hence why blood sugar is such a big part of their their supplement. So the girls have kindly given me a discount code for you guys. It will get you 20% off your first um, order, whether that's the daily or the PMS and period support capsules. And the code is ENDOLIFE, one word, all caps. So E-N-D-O-L-I-F-E. And that code is valid for the next six months, I believe. So you can use it at any time. Um, So let me know how you get on with them. I'd love to hear if you find them as amazing as I did. And I hope that they bring you a happier and healthier cycle and period. Okay, so today's episode is all about small intestine fungal overgrowth and yeast disorders. And of course, I know many of you are very familiar with thrush. And also, we know clinically, there's less research about it, but Dr. Jessica Drummond sees it a lot. I know Nicole Jardim sees this a lot. I see it a lot that yeast disorders like thrush, like candida overgrowth in the gut or elsewhere in the body are often correlated with pelvic pain disorders. And we also know that SIBO and SIFO often come hand in hand. And we know that up to 80% of people with endometriosis have SIBO. So therefore, how many of them also have SIFO? And I am seeing um, more and more complex cases. And in my clients that are you know, they do have a complex case of SIBO, I tend to see that the piece of the puzzle that is the complex piece is SIFO. The SIFO or the yeast is affecting how easily we're able to remove, lower that SIBO. So as a result, I'm doing an episode on these two with one of the world's leading specialists in this field, Dr. Armi Kapadia. I first came across Dr. Armie's work through some presentations that she held for an online conference for SIBO. And her lectures focused on SIFO, yeast disorders, and mold. And what I heard her describe really resonated with both my own story, but so many of my clients' stories. And like I said, I'm not alone. Dr. Jessica Drummond often speaks on the connection she sees between chronic pelvic pain and yeast problems. It's a big part of our training in pelvic pain with her. And obviously, as I said, SIFO and yeast are prevalent within the SIBO community. So I wanted to invite Dr. Army on to talk about her approach because there are many varying approaches to treating, um, not necessarily SIBO, but the 
order in which you treat SIBO and CIFO and how to test and whether you should use a CIFO or yeast diet and which antifungals to take and how long. So what I really love about Dr. Armour's approach is that it is very simple and minimal. And so it's not so overwhelming as these journeys can seem really overwhelming and scary. So we have Dr. Armour coming on today to talk to us about her approach. And she is a family medicine and integrative medicine physician. She has a specialist interest in yeast and fungal disorders, and she is the creator of Practitioner Course, A Minimalist Approach to CIFO and Mold-Related Illnesses. And she is also the founder of Patient Course, An Integrative Approach to CIFO, Small Intestine Fungal Overgrowth and Related Conditions. So I found this episode absolutely fascinating. I completely geeked out, as you'll probably be able to tell. Um, And I hope you find it as enjoyable and as interesting as I did. Let's start with um, just hearing a little bit about you and the work you do, because obviously you're famous in the CIFO and SIBO world, but um, for anyone who doesn't know your work, would you be able to introduce yourself and what you do? Sure. And Jessica, thanks for having me again. And um, so I'm, you know, I'm trained as a family medicine doctor. I was trained uh, in Philadelphia. Um, I did my residency in family medicine and I was interested in integrative and functional medicine from the start. Um, And I just I got lucky that my my mentor, my first year of medical school, he's still practicing in Philadelphia, Dr. Rosenzweig. And I just started following him around and was fortunate to get really early exposure to a lot of these topics. Mm. He was treating dysbiosis and SIBO and all of these things um, in the early 2000s when I would be following him around seeing patients. And so um, that was my start. And so I've tried to incorporate all along as I go working in different settings. You know, I worked at the VA, I worked in in, um, Philadelphia, I still work in urgent care, but I've had a private practice for the last six or seven years in Portland, Oregon. And uh, a lot of my patients have chronic digestive issues and autoimmune illness. uh, And I found that we really need to um, get a sense of overall what's going on with their microbiome. We can't really just focus on one particular issue. And so, as I've delved into that work over the last couple of decades, I finally sort of wanted to put all that information together. And so I really um, honed in on a couple of things where I saw there wasn't enough information to help guide us on how to treat some of these things. In particular, when I treat patients, I pay particular attention to internal stressors with the microbiome, whether that's bacterial overgrowth, fungal overgrowth, other forms of dysbiosis, allergies, And then we also pay a lot of attention to the outside external environment. And so we do a lot with exposure to water damaged buildings and other forms of toxicity exposures that can affect patients internally, even though we don't, we traditionally weren't always thinking of that when we were addressing someone's digestion and internal environment. So interesting. I already have like questions going off in my head um, in regards to this and try and keep to the ones I've, um, I've listed. So you've obviously mentioned you pay a lot of attention to dysbiosis and internal, um, you know, internal issues. So I'd love to understand, you know, more what CIFO and yeast related disorders are. And particularly with CIFO, I'm curious to to know, is it always candida that we see behind CIFO or are there other forms of fungi going on? 
Right. So the way I think about CIFO, a lot of people, because of our friend, Dr. Seebecker, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of our, our patients and practitioners know about SIBO or bacterial overgrowth. And so one way that I find it relatively easy to understand CIFO is that it's similar and that it's an overgrowth of organisms in the small intestine at levels that they generally shouldn't be found there. Um, and it's the normal, generally it is the candida species that we're talking about when we're talking about fungal overgrowth. And as opposed to SIBO, where we're seeing an overgrowth of bacteria, instead we're seeing an overgrowth of these fungal organisms. And um, so, so it typically is candida. I'll say because of the difficulty we have in actually lab testing uh, for this particular form of overgrowth, and we'll talk about the available ways to test, it, I do think it is usually candida, but occasionally when we've done stool testing per se, we'll find other forms of mold or fungi um, that are growing in the GI tract. Mm-hmm. We can't we can't say definitively if that's growing in the small intestine though from stool testing. So I suspect there can be other forms of fungi that grow, but the treatment protocols that we use and the testing we use tends to focus on candida. And I do find getting that population of our commensal organisms under better balance is helpful when we're treating patients for this. Okay. And and in terms of the other yeast-related disorders other than SIFO, would that be predominantly in the uh, large intestine? And I guess for, I do have a lot of listeners who I know who have recurrent thrush. So in that case, would that, would they also have a large intestine overgrowth with candida or can it just be in the vaginal microbiome? Right. Good question. So um, Jessica, you're welcome to share those slides that we briefly emailed about just so Mm -hmm. your audience can get a better sense of how I think of the yeast and fungal related disorders overall. But I try to, I, I, the way I think about it in my head is there's a couple different categories of the ways our body can have issues with yeast and fungal organisms. And one is traditional infections that we think of. Some of what you mentioned, like vaginal yeast overgrowth, that's relatively straightforward in the Western medical world to diagnose and treat or toenail fungus, for instance, or even oral thrush. We're pretty good at diagnosing that and treating that. And you can have that independently of having a small intestinal fungal overgrowth. And so one, one realm is this you know, more readily recognized infection sort of an issue. And then when we talk about small intestinal fungal overgrowth, that's not as easy to diagnose uh, and is not as well recognized. And it's not, I don't think of it as an infection per se. I think of it more like we briefly talked about so far, more of an overgrowth of the organisms that usually live further down in the GI tract. And so I don't think that someone has to have an overgrowth in the large intestine in order to have CIFO. I also don't think it's that important to differentiate on a clinical level, whether right. it's yeah. small intestine or overgrowth or large intestine, mm-hmm. just because our, again, our, the way we would go about treating that is more of an imbalance rather than an infection. And it doesn't change so much of what we do. And then finally, we'll talk about sort of the third arm that I think about with yeast and fungal related issues is uh, a a loss of immune tolerance for yeast and fungal organisms in the body. And that can fall into a more traditional viewpoint of an allergy. People can actually develop, like we think of mold allergies, mold is in the same kingdom of fungi as -hmm. yeast. And so genetically, some people are predisposed to having allergies and there's likely a a bit of a genetic predisposition for those who become 
intolerant of yeast and fungal related organisms. It doesn't always present as a typical IgE allergy, but that can be one way. Um, and the other way I think about it is just basically if an overgrowth has gone on for a period of time, our body again loses tolerance for that organism and it starts to react to it like an allergy, even if I if we can't prove that on a lab test. Right. Okay. So if it was if it was on a lab test, but that person didn't have an overgrowth, would it just be about trying to avoid those triggers as much as possible? Yes. So, you know, there's different ways to diagnose allergy. Um, again, in the in our traditional medical model, we can do skin testing with an allergist, or we can run an IgE lab panel to look for allergies. And those allergies are typically easier to treat. Like you said, Jessica, you could, if someone has a pollen allergy or a mold allergy, we do what we call environmental controls or precautions where we try to limit exposure, or we may send them for allergy shots or immunotherapy, which is a really great way to help again, reestablish that tolerance for those particular triggers. So that form is easier to treat than this more subtle form of loss of tolerance where it may not present as an IgE allergy on testing. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So we've obviously spoken about this a little bit um, over email, but how common do you personally find in your practice that yeast and SIFO is in SIBO patients and patients with endometriosis or pelvic pain patients? Because my client community is, they all have endometriosis and pretty much 95% of them have SIBO as well and other pelvic pain um, conditions. So I'm just curious as to what you see in your practice. Right. Yes. So um, while there's not traditional research per se on SIFO and yeast affecting some of those reproductive health conditions you mentioned. I always like to share some of the clinical pearls I learned from one of our mentors, Dr. Ty Vincent, who teaches a form of therapy called low-dose immunotherapy. Um, it's kind of a spin on homeopathy that we can talk more about, but for him, it's almost a keynote where if someone has interstitial cystitis or endometriosis, we definitely want to consider that they may have an aberrant immune system response to yeast as part of their overall symptom picture. So it's a clue for him that we should be thinking about that when someone has one of those conditions you mentioned. And um, while we can't directly test for an abnormal yeast overgrowth per se in some of the reproductive organs outside of traditional vaginal testing for, for that type of a yeast infection, we've known for a long time in integrative natural and functional medicine that patients can, can have imbalances in their gastrointestinal microbe, microbiome, and that can have far-reaching effects on distant organ sites. And so, for instance, we know that patients where we treat them for bacterial or yeast overgrowth may have improvement, improvement in distant organ systems. Um, I've had patients that have not only digestive issues and reproductive health issues like endometriosis and pelvic pain, but also arthritic conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, other pain conditions, fibromyalgia, cognitive symptoms that can improve when we treat an overgrowth in the GI tract, just because of this connection between the gut health and all of our distant organ systems, as well as just the way our immune system works, where imbalances in one area can have a profound effect on symptoms in distant organs as well. Mm. And, and presumably, if someone did have 
SIFO or some kind of yeast overgrowth, they would be having quite a lot of histamine reactions, which we know now contribute to the inflammation with endometriosis. We know that people with um, endo do have higher levels of mast cells that are hypersensitive in, in the actual endometriosis lesion. So do you think that could potentially be a connection? I definitely think it could. And we know from Dr. Theo Haridi's work, who's one of our teachers in mast cell and histamine related disorders, that when mast cells are around, uh, when there's exposure to fungus or yeast organisms, it does cause increased release of, of mast cell uh, mediators. And so there's definitely a potential for increasing histamine issues um, when there's increase of fungal organisms or even that aberrant immune system reaction to the yeast or fungal organisms. Right. And I mean, we know in terms of, we now know that E. coli plays a, a role in endometriosis growth as well, which I think is fascinating because they've done research into interstitial cystitis and E. coli has been found in the uh, bladder and then E. coli is coming up as like one of the main main bacteria in um, hydrogen sulfide um, SIBO. So I'm really curious to see eventually if we have any further research on the connection because those three turn up so much, SIBO, endometriosis and IC. Um, so I'd be interested to see how CIFO fits into the research in the future for sure. Right. I agree. I think we've had pretty minimal research thus far. We've gone a lot based on uh, the teachings and clinical knowledge from some of the forefathers in functional medicine and the, the practitioners that have been looking at, at the microbiome for decades. But it would be great for the, the research to catch up to the point where it is with SIBO, where we can make these connections more definitively. Yeah, absolutely. So for anyone who is listening um, and yeah, is, is kind of curious, maybe they have SIBO or have, they have IBS symptoms. What are the symptoms and signs of SIFO or yeast overgrowth? And are there any kind of co-conditions that may suggest their presence? I mean, you, you've indicated a couple already. Right. So the symptoms do overlap with SIBO quite a bit. And so we know that we can't tell based on symptoms alone, whether someone has SIBO or SIFO. And I do find that it's often a mix of these organisms out of balance rather than one or the other. Um, and so the symptoms being similar, they do include things like bloating, gas, uh, diarrhea was found more in the research, but I see constipation more in my patients who have yeast overgrowth. Belching can be a common one. So pretty typical symptoms of IBS, nausea as well can be one of them. Um, and so symptoms will be similar to SIBO. And so we can talk a little bit more about testing and how we might tease some of that out. Uh, but because of the symptom overlap, we do often, I do try to incorporate treatment for all of the imbalances, not just one or the other, when we're trying to get to the bottom of something like irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and the way I explain it to patients is that often there's a mix of things that are out of balance, and that includes bacteria, yeast, and often protozoa. And then there's often a co component of some sort of food sensitivities that we're going to try to sort out and hopefully minimize long-term avoidance, but at least try to sort out for the immediate trying to make progress. Um, and then there's a nervous system component where mm -hmm. if our stress response is out of balance, it's going to be hard to get really anything under control. And so I think of it like that mix of, of, of pathogens being out of balance, as well as food sensitivities and a nervous system component. And we want to address as many of those things as we can together. So interesting. So how do we I mean, I know it's limited at the moment, but how 
how do we best test for SIFO or yeast at the moment? Right. So the gold standard is a, um, a duodenal aspirate, which a gastroenterologist would do during an endoscopy procedure. Of course, that's invasive and there's very few gastroenterologists doing that. So we do have some non-invasive lab testing that I find really useful. Um, in the U.S., we're able to order a couple tests just through Quest or LabCorp. Uh, there's also a company called Alatest that does these same, same tests that, Jessica, you, you may have access to. Um, but basically, it's something called a candida immune complex, as well as candida antibodies, IgA, IgG, and IgM. And the candida immune complex is probably the most likely to be helpful in signifying a potential overgrowth based on the initial um, researchers who, who created that lab test. But I really go by if any of those markers are abnormal, the way I explain it to patients is that it gives me clues that their body may be having an issue with their yeast balance. There is research on elevated IgG antibodies in patients who responded to treatment for fungal overgrowth more so than the other antibodies. But I'll typically order all of them and any of them being elevated will give me that clue that we may want to look at that. I have plenty of patients where that doesn't show up and it doesn't rule out a problem with a yeast overgrowth or imbalance, but if it's there, it will give us a clue in that direction that it's something we'd want to consider. And I'm maybe I missed this, but do you, so do you not use the organic acid test or the, um, yeah. you do? I do. I like the organic acid test. It, it depends on my, on my patient. And so we, in the US, we do, um, my practice is mostly insurance-based. And so those tests I mentioned, I can order no problem for anyone. Mm -hmm. The organic acid test, it kind of depends on insurance and those types of things. And I do find it useful. They have a whole spectrum of nine or more metabolites that can be helpful uh, to look at potential fungal overgrowth. The, the one that's been around the longest that we've known about is the arabinose marker but there's many others as well. And that can also help as part of the clinical picture. I, I don't order that on everyone just, just based on their uh, needs and financial reasons. Okay. And um, with the, I don't know if it was in, in your lecture that I watched, but um, I mean, I, I sign up to the SIBO SOS um, conferences. So right. I've seen I've seen this somewhere and I've been racking my brains as to who said it. Um, it could have been Dr. Paul Anderson. Um, but do you use an antibiofilm before you do the oat test to see if you can shift any of the candida to actually show up? Because obviously it, it can hide quite well in biofilms. Right. I I don't have enough experience with doing that, Jessica, to share um, with the other testing I do, since it's more of a antibody immunologic test, I haven't needed biofilm treatment yeah. for that, but it would make sense to consider that before an oat test. I, I, I can't say um, I, I've done it enough times. The times I've done it without biofilm treatment, a, a large percentage of the time the arabinose is elevated without doing any biofilm treatment. So it would be interesting to see if we got other markers elevate more so if we did include something like that yeah absolutely I, i'll look at those other tests because i i don't usually use those i have to see if they're on the um on the the lab company that i use i have a look into those um okay. so in terms of your approach what what is your approach for treatment with CIFA and yeast i mean you um did kind of just explain you have this kind of overarching approach of looking at a couple of different factors. Could we dive into those a little bit more? And I mean, do you have like a time frame 
like is it is it fairly tricky or straightforward right I would say if we were dealing with just fungal overgrowth I don't think it would be that tricky I think the complications come in a couple different ways one is because there's usually a couple microbes out of balance the other tricky part I find is that everyone is under so much stress these days and you know not just now but even more so now that I, I find that if we don't address that nervous system component, that can make it more challenging to treat just because the body doesn't respond as well. And that takes a while to convince someone that that's part of what's going on and to implement strategies just because there's so many factors. Um, so we could go through sort of the, the therapies that we use, keeping those things in mind. The other complicating factor I find besides sort of that we need to address all of the microbes being out of balance and the stress response would be environmental exposure to water damaged buildings. And mm -hmm. I suspect in the UK, it's similar to a lot of places in the US where unfortunately over half of the buildings have had water damage at some point and it may or may not have been corrected properly. And the way I think about that is that if our body is under stress from fungi in our external environment, it's going to have a really hard time controlling the yeast and fungi in the internal environment. Mm. So those are the things that make it complicated. If I have a patient that's generally not sort of, you know, and I fall into this, this type A personality, so no, nothing wrong with that. But if I have a patient that's not like a type A personality, is already doing a lot of mindfulness-based practices, does not live in a water damaged building, you know, the, the path is much more straightforward, but I would say the majority of my patients don't fit into that category. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm happy to talk about our overall approach. And so I came up with this sort of pyramid that we emailed a bit about, Jessica, as far as like, what is the overall approach that we can take? And I always like to start with foundations. And I, I know that you and a lot of your audience are probably familiar with that. But if we skip that and start doing more complicated interventions, we're missing yeah. the boat. Yeah, right. So, absolutely. Um, yeah. So we always start with talking about sleep, food, nutrition, exercise and stress, at least to get the conversation going about that. Obviously, it's not something we can change overnight, but we at least start that conversation. And then I do do I lab testing on most of my patients. I'll order at the first visit just to get some of those basic labs done um, mm -hmm. that we talked about with the candida testing, the antibodies, the immune complex. I do check for some basic nutrient deficiencies that have, have been found to be common in patients with fungal overgrowth. And that includes things like zinc, uh, zinc deficiency. So I'll check a serum or plasma zinc and copper. Okay. I'll check a 12, which is frequently low. And then ferritin is often low, especially in our female patients for reasons that can vary from absorption, digestion issues to uh, being vegetarian to um, basically just menstrual cycle loss. So those are common nutrient deficiencies I find, and we want to replete those to help the body's immune response to fighting yeast and keeping the balance in, in a, a better check. So we'll check those, we'll check on any obvious risk factors they have that we can easily modulate. For example, if they're on a, I have handfuls of patients that are on a proton pump inhibitor that really is not indicated anymore, and they don't have Barrett's esophagus, they don't have a compelling reason to stay on that. So we know that acid suppression can cause overgrowth and be a, I shouldn't say cause, but can be a contributing factor to overgrowth. So we want to remove that and find other substitutions if there's not a compelling reason to be on it. So those are some of the initial things we look at. And then 
when we're actually talking about treatment of overgrowth, there's several natural herbal options. There's also prescription options. And mm -hmm. I try to individualize that. I think we all have our biases, whether we prefer one or the other. I personally prefer using natural options, which is counterintuitive since I'm trained as a medical doctor, but I've used them for so long now and they're, they're really safe. And since this sometimes can be something that we're treating on and off for a while, I, I do prefer that when possible. That being said, you know, there's generic prescriptions that for certain patients that might be a better option. And I also have patients that have mast cell type histamine issues where they actually do better on prescriptions because they're somewhat less complex in the way the body interacts with them. So uh, I try to gear it really to the patient and what would work best for them as opposed to my personal preferences. Um, and I'm happy to talk about some of the herbals and prescriptions that we use. It's almost easier to start with the prescriptions because there's really only two that I use. And so should we start with that maybe and then talk yeah. about some of the herbal options? Okay. So a really old safe antifungal is called nystatin. It's not systemically absorbed, so we don't have to worry about monitoring liver function tests. And there's minimal risk of side effects. It's basically, it could cause a little bit of gastritis if it was given on an empty stomach. And we may cause some resistance if we use it for too long of a time or improperly, but in general, it's a really safe option. So if I'm going to use a prescription, I may start, I often will start with nystatin for those reasons. And uh, it can be dosed multiple ways. I typically start slow just in case it causes a die-off reaction and we'll go up to two tablets three times a day for my patients here. Um, what would be the milligrams of that? Yeah, it, it comes in units. So I believe it's a 500,000 unit tablet. Okay. And so um, I'll have patients start slow with that again, and we'll work up gradually. It may work a little bit better on an empty stomach just because it's not absorbed. So it's working on what it comes in contact with mm. in the GI tract. That being said, if anyone has GI upset with it, you can definitely give it with food and it will still work. So we'll do it that way. And the other prescription we'll use if the nystatin doesn't seem to have any effect, it doesn't rule out that there's not that there's a yeast overgrowth. It just tells us that we may not have picked the right agent for the particular uh, person because each, you know, each person's species of what they have is going to respond to certain herbs and certain prescriptions. And so there might be um, a sensitivity issue there where it's not the right agent for what they have. And so then I'll, I'll sometimes do a two-week trial of fluconazole just to see, again, since these medications are both mostly targeting yeast and not so much other organisms, just to clarify whether that's part of the picture for that person. So mm -hmm. with fluconazole, you do have to monitor liver function tests. And I don't like using it long-term because it can have a lot of drug interactions um, and other potential issues related to resistance. So I'll use it more as a trial for a couple of weeks. Okay. And with the nystatin, is there like a time frame for that? Because I was prescribed it by my doctor and it was only for five days and I don't feel it shifted anything. <laughs> Right. So for nystatin, I usually do a one to three month trial of that. So okay. I don't want people to stay on it forever if we're not having a response, but I think it takes at least a month to really get a sense of what something's doing with all the different interactions that are going on with, with each of us. So because it's so, so safe, I, I do one month minimal trial. If we think it might be helping, I'll often continue it for three months and then we'll kind of reevaluate. And um, with fluconazole, it can be used longer, but you definitely have to be on top of it with monitoring other drugs and liver function tests. But if it's really helping someone, it can be used for a bit longer as well. 
okay, I think it's the the trick is trying to get the doctor to prescribe these things for longer. Um, right. Yeah, if they're not if they're not a specialist, but that's really helpful. I'll just tell them to listen to this episode. <laughs> Yeah, and there's lots of, um, you know, that's another reason I like, Jessica, the natural options, because we've got so many wonderful practitioners that may not be able to prescribe, but there's things that under the guidance of, of someone who knows what they're doing can be super helpful. And so um, while it's great to have a, you definitely want to have a practitioner, but there's many different forms of practitioners. And so um, finding someone knowledgeable that knows how to use herbal therapies and natural therapies can, I think, be equally and sometimes more helpful than prescriptions. And so I'm happy to talk more about some of the herbs that we use and that we find helpful. That would be wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Okay, great. And so, you know, my two go-to to start with, one is Thorn SF722, which is um, a form of undiosinic acid. It's been used for decades, and I find it works really well for, for yeast-related overgrowth. The dosing is pretty much what, what they recommend per the Thorn um, directions that you would find on the bottle. Okay. Uh, I have people do three to five gel caps up to three times a day. Um, most people find it hard to take things three times a day. So I'll usually say, start with twice a day. If you find an extra mid midday dose helpful, then go ahead and do that as well. Because some people do find that their cognition and digestion and everything is better if they get that third dose in. Okay. Uh, that one is really safe too. We, I'll do again a one month or I'll say to do it for one bottle. If it's helping, we may continue it longer, but we'll usually reevaluate it four to six weeks. And then another one I really like is by a company called Beyond Balance. It's called Mycoregion. Hmm. It's a liquid, safe for kids and adults who are sensitive. So I also really like it because it's such minute quantities of different herbs that I don't really have to worry about it interacting with things. And so um, it's really well tolerated. It can be titrated. And uh, the dosing for that too is just based on what the company recommends. And I'm not affiliated with any of them, but those are the two that I've had really good success with over the years. Okay. And you don't, do ahead. you combine them or um, as in, do you take two or just one? Because obviously with SIBO, we tend to combine two right. herbal formulas. It's a good question. I typically just use one. Um, okay. I don't typically find I have to combine them. We'll just try one. If it doesn't work, we'll move on to a different one. And okay. that's what I'll do for these two products. Um, and there's a company that I love that was formulated by one of my mentors, Dr. Michael Leibowitz and his son. That's called Supreme Nutrition Products. They have a whole host of antimicrobial herbs that I really find extremely effective. The one difference with their products is, is a, you know, basically it's a benefit, but it, it, they're broad spectrum. So if we treat using them, we don't know exactly what we're treating. Mm. Um, so we can't say for, for example, that the, the person got better because it was a yeast issue. That being said, a lot of the herbs overlap with what we use for SIBO. So we can, you know, get a couple of things taken care of with one protocol. And that's where I might use more than one herb when I'm using their, their line of products, similar to how we treat SIBO. Some of the specific ones that they have that I really like uh, Malia Supreme, which is neem, Golden Thread Supreme, which is a form of Coptis and has berberine, okay. Olive Leaf Supreme, and Marinda Supreme are, are my favorites that they have. And I do find brands make a difference. Again, I'm not affiliated with any of these companies, but people will bring me things from other companies that don't work as well as the ones I'm mentioning to you. So it, we're all tempted to kind of use what we have at home, but I really, when I see patients, I really recommend they get the products we're recommending because I, I don't find 
a random brand of this or that works as well as these companies that I'm that we're talking about. I completely agree. I find there's like, you know, integrated therapeutics, uh, the berberine complex and the ADP, those are great, but other other oregano supplements and, and berberine are just not as effective. I agree. And I, you know, I learned a form of kinesiology testing from Dr. Leibowitz, and I also do um, autonomic response testing. And I always tell patients I'm not diagnosing you based on this, but it gives me a really good sense of what might be out of balance and what would be the best fit for what you're what you have going on. And these are, you know, the ones that test really well for people in addition to our clinical experience with them. Oh, that's so interesting. So those are the main those are the main ones that you use. Are there are there any others? Do you ever do you use oregano or? You know, um, again, Jessica, we all have biases. So I remember, you know, one of my mentors just all of oregano is quite strong. It and is, so yeah. I, I'm hesitant to use that because of my personal bias. That being said, I've heard Dr. Paul Anderson talk about it and he um, is one of the smartest people we know. And so I feel like I should probably experiment with it a bit, but um, I personally have not used it very much just because of my, my personal bias with that. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because I feel like there's conflicting. Some doctors love oregano, and then some of them are like, I use it as a last resort. I, in my own SIBO experience, I found that the oregano was the most effective in terms of oh, antimicrobials. Yeah. I mean, I had really bad die off from it, so I do wonder if maybe it was just because it was killing everything. Right, <laughs> so- maybe it was working on yeast, and we know that people get die off symptoms if they have this sort of like yeast hypersensitivity, allergic type of issue. Mm-hmm. It's almost like their body's dealing with this uh, inflammatory response, like really dealing with an allergy as we uh, work on decreasing the load of these microbes. So that's really interesting. And do you, we, I mean, obviously you've mentioned you've got this company that the, um, sorry, I can't remember the the name, but the company that does seem to treat both SIBO and CIFO. But if you were because I've done uh, Dr. Seebecker's training um, and, you know, you, you we tend to go through a SIBO protocol and then once that's all clear, if symptoms are still remaining, we might think, ah, okay, maybe they're SIFO. But would you just do the SIBO test, maybe do some kind of test to check the, for dysbiosis in the large intestine and then kind of treat all at the same time or, or would you stagger treatment? Right. It's a good question. And again, one of my mentors, Dr. Leibowitz, when I trained with him, what I learned was that really we want to try to address as many things at once as we can with some caveats. Obviously, we don't want to go overboard, but if we're, let's say the person has protozoa and a yeast overgrowth and a bacterial overgrowth, and we just treat the yeast, for example, the bacteria might increase then and the protozoa might increase, you know, to kind of fill the gaps in the in the GI tract. And so... Mm. Um, so I do like using broad spectrum antimicrobial herbs in that way. It, it, it's a it's a benefit of using those broad spectrum products. And so from his from that company, the Malia Supreme and the Golden Thread Supreme, really they they test really well for people. And they that's neem and berberine, which is part of Dr. Seebecker's yeah. protocol for SIBO. So I really like those two. A, a lot of people do really well on them, and we can you know get a pretty good. Um, overall treatment for multiple things that are out of balance uh, rather than just targeting one or the other. Okay. That's really helpful. Um, and those, those complexes, they don't, I guess, because I'm always a little bit cautious with some of the anti-parasite and antifungals, some of them have aggravators like SIBO aggravators in like, yeah. um, I'm trying to think uh, about these don't, uh, these don't Jessica. Great. Um, 
They they have one ingredient because um, Dr. Leibowitz would have people fly in to see him from all around the world, and they were incredibly sensitive, environmentally ill, and so they basically almost all the products have one ingredient. There's no fillers, nothing, so they're really well tolerated. Okay, that's perfect. Okay, that's really good to hear. Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. These natural patches last for 12 hours, so they bring you prolonged relief and can begin working on relaxing your muscles before the pain kicks in, so you're prepared even if your period comes during the middle of the day. Some people even find that wearing them a night before their period can really help soothe the inflammation in the area. To shop, just head to link in my show notes. And so, and if you didn't, um, say a, a patient didn't test positive for C4E yeast, would you, would you still reasonably assume and just add an antifungal to the protocol? It's a good question. Since I mostly use herbs, it's, it's going to be somewhat covered a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That being said, if I'm not sure, let's say their, their antibodies are all negative, but clinically, I still feel like since we know at least a quarter or 30% of people with, with some of these digestive and other issues may have a fungal issue, it's very safe to do a trial of either Nystatin, SF722, or Mycoregion if we want to first see Okay, does this person respond to antifungal? Um, we could. Do, there's different ways to do it. We could do it that way, or if we know they have SIBO and other things, some of these broad spectrum herbs are going to cover our bases. And the caveat is always just that we can't assume that's not part of the picture just because they didn't respond because we might have not picked the right agent for them. But in general, we could either use one of those two approaches where we use a more targeted antifungal, herbal, or prescription, or we just go with our broad spectrum treatment that's going to help with a lot of the dysbiosis going on, regardless of what it is, you know? Yeah. Okay. That's really helpful. And this sounds completely random, but I'm just curious, do you, uh, do you use candybactin BR or AR? You know, there's, there's, research on that and there's publications, but I have not used those as much. I think because I've had so much success with the right. product lines that we discussed, I, yeah. I haven't ventured out. Okay. And um, would you ever, with the t- um, ones that you use, do you tend to rotate through? So say you come to the end of um, four to six weeks with fawn, would you then rotate with another? And would you maybe revisit fawn later on if multiple rounds were required? Good question. So there's there's different theories on how we should approach this with yeast. The way that I was taught, yeast don't really work like bacteria as far as the way that resistance is created. So we know that there's a lot of antibiotic resistance in general. There is some fungal resistance, but fungi don't grow as rapidly. And they also secrete mycotoxins and other metabolites as part of how they survive. It's not as much based on mutation from the way I learned. And so what I typically do is if we find a product that works, we'll do it for four to six weeks. And if the person's generally doing well, we may just continue it longer. I don't always stop it right away. If we want to take a break after that four to six weeks, we may pull it. And if their symptoms come back, we'll often just try the same thing again. Um, The other thing that happens with more so I've had this with Nystatin than the herbals, but occasionally with the herbals, if it's working really well, and then they find after a month or so it's not working as well, 
will pull it for a week or two. And again, the way I learned is that there's gonna be certain strains of yeast or fungi that are resistant to any product we use. They are usually genetically weaker strains. And so then they, they often will die off and the same product will work again for the majority of whatever population you have. So mm. I'll, I'll pull it for a week or two and then add back the same one. If we're just getting stuck, it's certainly possible that what they have going on at that point is not gonna respond to the same agent. So you can certainly rotate. I'll say with, with the micro region, for instance, I've had a lot of patients that have just been on that for a long time and they haven't had time to sort of address other things that are predisposing them to yeast that we're trying to treat. So they've just chosen to stay on that. And it, it, I just keep seeing them, they've reordered that same product. So it's, it's worked like somewhat regularly for some patients without having to do much with rotation. Okay. And how would you... Um... You know, if someone was at doing this at home, maybe they, I mean, obviously you have a course, which we'll talk about in a minute. So you'll give them guidance, but would we just wait to see a subsidence of symptoms as, or would you look for a, a negative test to assume whether it's been eradicated or not? Yes. You know, I'm not, I'm not really big on lab testing. So I like to get that initial set of labs for the things we're looking for. I don't do a lot of follow-up lab testing unless I'm kind of confused and maybe they did have elevated candida antibodies or immune complex. And now we're not sure if that's still part of what's going on with them. I may retest those just because it's so easy to do. And I think it would make sense to repeat organic acid testing as well. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of times if they've had symptom improvement, I don't automatically retest. Um, but those few risk factors that we, we've talked some about, I think the most overlooked one that would cause someone to continue to have symptoms over and over once we pull the therapy is this allergic hypersensitivity response to yeast where you can get to a point where you've treated the overgrowth, but their body's having this almost allergic-like reaction to the normal population of yeast that's always gonna live on our mucous membranes. And that's not something we're gonna eradicate. So it's different than some of the other things we treat where we're not going for complete eradication. We're just trying to reestablish immune tolerance. And the first way we do that is by reducing the overgrowth. And then what's left is if they keep persisting to have symptoms every time we pull the treatment, one of the things we wanna look at is are they allergic to molds, fungi, other things, yeast that's causing them to have this sort of um, recurrent symptomatology even when we've gotten the overgrowth down. Okay, so that's when you would do the kind of allergy testing and then maybe consider the immunotherapy. Right. And so where you are, Jessica, that would involve either, I, I, I suspect that there's normal allergy testing with, with an allergist in the UK, and I know you practice across the world. So a regular allergist can test for pollens, molds, grasses, all of these things. If we have allergies, our mucous membranes are going to have some chronic inflammation that makes us predisposed to having more recurrent issues. And then in this sort of integrative alternative medicine world, in the UK, there's a, a therapy called enzyme potentiated desensitization. In the US, there's LDA or LDI um, that patients can um, or practitioners can learn more about through Dr. Butch Schrader's website and Dr. Ty Vincent's website, as well as the American Academy of Environmental Medicine. These are some of the practitioners that would have that other way of potentially treating this type of, of uh, immune hypersensitivity. Okay. And 
would you potentially look into like master activation syndrome as, as well if someone was very reactive? Yes, I do. I do that. And I think treating that symptomatically can definitely help while we're getting at these underlying triggers. And it was sort of something I had an oversight of for many years when I started treating patients. I always wanted to get to the underlying issues and I was ignoring their symptoms in some ways where I was so focused on, we need to figure out the, the triggers. And I was sort of losing the, trying to help them with their symptoms initially. Cause this, as, as we've talked about, this can take a while. So mm. I've found it much more fruitful to, again, just always keep in mind, like, where's the patient at this state of where we're treating them? How can we help them live more comfortably now? Because it's going to take a while to do all of these other things. And definitely some of the very easy minimally invasive therapies we have like H1, H2 blockers, ketodafin, chromalin, quercetin, like some very basic things can really make a profound effect for their symptoms mm -hmm. while we're sort of getting to these underlying things. Because we know, like we talked about that, while this may be a trigger for MCAS and histamine issues, again, some of us are predisposed to allergic response and probably predisposed to more reactive mast cells. And so we don't want to ignore that part because it, it can be a cause and an effect. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's a huge, you know, autoimmune where people with endometriosis are at higher risk of having autoimmune conditions, of allergic rhinitis, of asthma, of eczema. So there's definitely a lot going on there with like inflammatory hist and histamine issues. And so I I'm just wondering in terms of the other kind of factors if someone was living you talked about like a water damaged house would you I've I've heard like a lot of mold and uh histamine experts being like you just have to get out of the house if someone yeah. was living in like a water damaged home um you know maybe the the damage wasn't active like it had been fixed would you wait to start treatment and get them to like move? Cause I've literally heard people say, you know, you just have to move. I and mean, what would be your approach there? Okay. I have several thoughts on this, Jessica. So I, you know, you can definitely start treatment while they're there. Um, my prop, my, my issue with, with when we tell people to just move, it's not an easy thing to do on multiple levels again, because so many homes have had water damage it's not like you can just move and solve the problem. Um, mm. The other issue I have is that if a solution is more expensive than the majority of the world's population can afford, I don't really see it as a solution. So I'm always looking for ways that we can work with how most people live. And so I've had the benefit of meeting some amazing uh, indoor environmental professionals in the country, in the US who have taught me a lot. And I do think a lot of homes can be remediated. Um, you know, it, it, it can get expensive and it's involved and it's a lot of effort for the person. But I also, the way I think about it is with our health overall, it's not like we're gonna do all of it this year. I no. try to come up with a plan with the patient and the environmental professional we work with, what's the biggest issue? And so let's start working on that. So for a lot of people, that's the basement or crawl space is, is, ends up being the biggest issue, like a drainage issue or a water intrusion issue there. And so it's also like the body in that it's like a microbiome of our house. We're not going for zero mold. We're going for a normal microbial ecology in the house. And the way we do that is we don't have to find, of course, I guess in an ideal world, we would find each and every source of water damage in the home and fix it. That being said, um, 
I do think we have seen great improvement with finding the big things. And it does take a load off of the immune system if we can get the majority of the issues resolved by working with an indoor environmental professional. There's certain things that a professional has to do. And then there's certain things that that patients and clients can do as part of the process. I definitely don't recommend like a whole DIY project, but but working with, with IEPs or indoor environmental professionals like the ones we have, they can help guide us on what do you need a professional to do? And then what can you do after that? Sort of the small particle cleaning part. I think there are, are parts of the process that, that clients can do on their own after the bulk of the removal has been completed and remediated uh, all in a safe way. So you can definitely start treating someone. It's gonna take often years for them to either decide to move or get all of the remediation done. So to me, it doesn't make sense to wait. That would also again be like in an ideal world, but isn't really mm-hmm. realistic. Yeah. Um, so that's my that's kind of my overall thoughts on how we work with patients that are living in a water damaged building. It's just really tricky because often they have cognitive issues. And so it's just a challenge on all fronts to, you know, we've all, a lot of us have been in that place where you're, unfortunately your brain is not working as well as you would like it to. So to work with clients in that situation takes a certain amount of experience and patience and an environmental professional who's willing to um, work with them in that way. And so that, that's kind of like our team approach, you know? Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I mean, it's so difficult. I mean, personally, I am, I mean, I I live in a rented flat and we had a huge flood whilst we were on holiday and um, we came home to water pouring out the front door. Um, Yeah, it was really bad. We had to move out for six weeks and I've just had horrific histamine issues since really, really bad. And the mold and the condensation has been really bad. And we've just not been able to move for multiple reasons. And so... And it's it's rented accommodation. So there's only so much we can do. You know, our landlords got everything repaired, but they're not going to pull up the carpets to check for mold. So I've got a air purifier and a dehumidifier. And I have over here, I don't know if you guys have them in America, but we have, um, they're naturally based. Um, called, they're called BioLife. And they have these like mold air sprays and mold furnishing sprays and like mold laundry sprays. And I just use all of that as much as possible. And when we, when we started using that and we got the air, the dehumidifier, it was such a game changer. And I, we definitely need to get out, but we've had things happening. Like my boyfriend's dad was sick for a very, very long time. And it was just, there was just too much going on for us to move. And then COVID. So you know, but um, that made a, a real difference. So do you think in, if people are in that kind of situation where they have landlords that aren't going to do too much and they just can't move at the moment, they can sort of do a little bit of maintenance? Yes, I think, you know, it's obviously, I've again changed my perspective over the years. A lot of us, I, I don't feel like ideal is often not achievable. And so we do what we can with where we are. And then we still try to keep those goals in mind of what we think is going to be best for our health more long-term. Um, so I think what you did is great, Jessica. I mean, you, you can only do what you can do. And so running air filters, dehumidifiers, I have people leave the windows open if it's yeah. in a climate where they can just to get some ventilation in that way. Um, and there's ways to even create box fans at home. If you Google like um, box fan filters, you can literally, when we had smoke in, in Oregon and no one had air filters, we 
we all learned how to do that. Our Oregon Health Authority even put out a nice video on how to do that, but you can buy furnace filters and make your own filters for home. But I think all of those things are helpful, washing clothes and such with borax. Like I have people do a half a cup of borax in their wash just for anything that's washable. And then, you know, moving when it becomes possible is what we want to do if there's been water damage. And it's with, especially with a rental where we know we don't have control over some of those things. If the carpet was um, soaked, it's, it's going to be a problem long-term, but you do what you can do for now. Mm -hmm. And then um, you move when you can. Ideally, you know, I, again, we go for as close to optimal as we can, but for buildings that have sort of a concrete floor uh, base layer or concrete buildings, those tend to be less problematic. Newer, con newer construction can be problematic, but generally has less years to accumulate water intrusion. Uh, we try to avoid homes that have been just flipped because those are just going for sort of aesthetics. We're going for more sort of quality of structure of the building. And so when people are renting, I, I do try to have them look for something either um, that's been ne more newly built and potentially has like concrete. I don't know how it is in the UK, Jessica, but a lot of places here have retail space on the bottom. So we don't have to deal with that ground layer right. of the whole interacting with, with potential water intrusion. And then um, you can find, you know, it is possible to find safe apartments and flats, but it, it's certainly not easy. So those are just some of the tips we have, we, we look for for people. And then if they live in a home and they like their home, I think it's worth remediating, even if it takes, it's over the course of several years. I, I just ask people like, do you like your home otherwise? And then as long as it's not a complete, you know, uh, situation where we have to do like a teardown, we, we can usually work with our IEP to get things remediated over time. And so, but if they don't like it, then yes, we, we advise them if there's that much going on to move and work with an IEP even before they purchase a new home so they can get a sense of what to look for. Okay, that's really helpful. I this might break my heart, but my dream is to buy a um, one of those red wooden houses in Sweden. A wooden house is like a terrible idea. I don't know that one, Jessica. Is it a particular like? It's. Oh, do you know what? I'll email you a picture. But they're yeah, just they're just fully. I mean, you guys have them in America. They look like those kind of. I don't know where you would have them, but they just look like those the wooden houses you guys have in the country. They look pretty much identical, but they're like painted red and they've got like these white kind of white window frames. Yeah. I don't think it's, I don't think it's like a horrible idea. I mean, the main problem with building construction is that we build with drywall. So we're, we're putting paper, we shouldn't be building houses out of paper, but we do. And they're not built to be able to take a water intrusion, even though we know it's getting better. Um, my husband's a mechanical engineer, so I know an unusual amount about building science. There's a great <laughs> website called buildingscience.com. Um, I think that's what it's called. And I'm, I'm trying to get my husband to refocus his career on this, but basically <laughs> we need some of these really smart people who understand building envelopes to change how we do construction. And that's, it's happening. It's just, it's kind of slow, but you know, drywall is a problem. Wood per se is not the problem. It's just that um, the things we prioritize like LEED certification and such are wonderful because they're environmentally friendly, but they're not necessarily it, it, they don't necessarily have the qualities in mind that we need for building build building a, a a home so that it can it can accommodate if there's water intrusion and that water can evaporate. So there are ways to do that. It, it seems like it's going to take a mindset in construction practices uh, or working with someone who's just sort of at the forefront. But I do think it's getting better. Um, 
And I don't think what you're describing is like a nightmare by any means. I think, you know, the biggest things I would think about when, when purchasing a home are ideally it's above grade. You don't want water, you don't want like water sinking in towards the house. You want the slope to be away from the house as best as you can, or at least yeah. at grade. You don't want a, a house below grade. And then if it has a crawl space, ideally you want to get that encapsulated because that that air is going to come up into the house. Half of that air in the house comes from down below. So for people with crawl spaces, which do they have that in the UK? I don't think so. But okay. I'm not in I'm not yeah. very good at those, but I don't I don't think we do. And then I mean I prefer concrete basements, but then you don't want to finish the basement. You want to, I'd recommend keeping it concrete. Again, I'm not like a construction person, but these are things we've learned over the years where I, ideally, I feel like if there's concrete under the house, at least you can check things out. Whereas if there's just a little crawl space, it's a bit more challenging. Mm -hmm. And then of course, what's called slab on grade where the house is just built on concrete and there's a vapor barrier, which is like a big plastic sheet in between the ground and the, the concrete slab that's poured in such. So there's ways to do it by people who are a lot smarter than me about building science. It's just, unfortunately, it's not like the standard at this time, you know? This is fascinating. Okay, I'm I'm gonna like get in touch with your husband when we finally like buy a house. Oh, and be like, I know house. When I can convince him to refocus his brain on this because I think he's someone that could do it. Yeah, this sounds fascinating, especially with like restoration projects and stuff. I think it would help yes. a lot of people. Um, okay, so in terms of other kind of helpful strategies when you're going through this this treatment, are there any dietary changes that should be made with CFO or yeast and and are they absolutely required because I do have a number of both clients and listeners who who reach out and say you know I have a past history of an eating disorder or I'm sick already I don't want to cut out foods like are there any simplified suggestions or is it possible to treat without making any dietary changes Okay, so I think it's important to not overly restrict, like you said, Jessica, but I'll give you the my couple points where I think we do have to be um, mindful of diet. And of course, outside of, I'm sure your clients working with you, they're going to get an overall approach to an overall healthy diet, anti-inflammatory yeah. diet. But as far as exclusions, I always think it's important to test for gluten sensitivity mm-hmm. because that's a food that can cause inflammation for weeks to months on end if they're eating it and they have a hypersensitivity. And so I start with the standard testing for gluten, which includes anti-gliadin and tissue transglutaminase antibodies, as well as a total IgA. So there's sort of like five tests that we do through the regular lab. If that comes back negative, I get an advanced gluten panel called Cyrex array number three, which is run over here by Cyrex labs. I know there's different companies that do that, but I think it's important to get a yes or a no on that issue. Okay. Besides gluten, the only other thing I highly recommend outside of working with patients, like we know dairy is a common one. So I at least want us to talk a little bit about, do we want to investigate that with, with, we figure out the gluten issue and then dairy occasionally will do IgG food testing, but it's not that hard to do a, a unless someone has had significant eating disorder and we're not going to even go down that route. Otherwise I'll just have people take dairy out for seven to 10 days mm-hmm. and then eat lunch and see how they feel. So we kind of look at those foods and then I do tell them, I need you to um, remove refined sugars. You can still eat fruit, fresh and frozen fruit, stevia, monk fruit, those things that you tolerate. It's not forever, but for a period of time, we need to remove those because that will make a yeast condition worse. So we've got gluten, their personal food sensitivity, 
um, removing refined sugars. And they always ask maple syrup and honey. And those two are, I consider added sugar. So we remove those for a period yeah. of time, at least when we're starting. And then um, the other part is a yeast mold elimination challenge, which there's a description on my website under resources in the digestive illness section where uh, it's based on, an, on a, one of the four fathers of functional medicine, Sydney Baker created this five day yeast mold elimination where you take out all of the foods that may cross react with yeast and molds. And these don't feed a yeast overgrowth, but your body may have become cross reactive to those things in foods because of the overgrowth. So it's not to remove forever, but it, again, if, if, if they can handle it and it's not gonna make any disordered eating patterns worse for five days, we'll remove yeast, fermented foods, vinegar, dried fruit, things that cross react. Then we'll add back whichever ones of those they miss and just get a sense of if they're tolerating them or not. And if they find any time in the one to three days after adding them back that they feel worse, I will ask them to keep them out for the first two to three weeks of the protocol and then keep trying them every so often because often okay. when we reduce the overgrowth, they won't be as reactive anymore. And then we can just stick with like an overall anti-inflammatory anti diet, which may or may not be gluten-free often is, sometimes is dairy-free and is minimizing added sugars for their overall health, but we don't like to restrict a lot more after that unless we were really getting stuck. Okay. That's so helpful. Thank you so much. I have a, I have a client who, um, she, she's got lots of candida and, um, but Christmas is coming up. So she's like, I don't want to remove sugar yet. So I might, I might be like, mm, let's wait till January <laughs> to start the treatment. Best time of year. Yeah. Definitely. Difficult time. Okay. And then, um, how I just want to make sure that I haven't, I haven't missed anything, but I think we've, oh, actually, Hormonal treatment, birth control, a lot of um, endometriosis patients are prescribed birth control. Um, it obviously doesn't work for everyone. But if someone is using hormonal birth control, that can affect candida. Am I, am I right in saying that? So Jessica, I don't think it's as much of an issue as it was a couple of decades ago because mm -hmm. they're very low dose now. So I, don't, I have not found them to interfere with our treatment. And I found overall for patients that need it for hormone regulation, that the benefits often outweigh the risks. So I don't find it, I don't want them to stress out about that. I, I haven't found it to prevent us from making progress because of the low dose birth control pills that are currently used for management most of the time. So um, you're right, but I also think it's such a minimal issue at this point with the dosages that are used that unless they tell me they feel like it's made them a lot worse, or they're at a point where they want to try to remove them. Um, I don't think that's necessary to stop that for us to treat them for this. Okay, that's that's really helpful. Thank you. Um, so, how can people find you and work with you if they suspect that they might have a CFO or yeast disorder? Okay, great. So, in the U.S., I cannot work with patients outside of the states I'm licensed in currently, but I suspect some of those laws are going to be changing. So what I've asked everyone to do on my website, which is just amikapadia.com, if you sign up for the newsletter on the front page, I promise not to send you anything. I, I don't have a lot of time to send things, so I will <laughs> only let you know when uh, and if and when I'm able to work with you, and I, I hope to be able to do that in the future. Um, so that's one thing. You can sign up for the newsletter there. And then part of my goal for this past year was I was getting a lot of calls from, from clients and patients from out of state. And I 
I just decided I really needed to create something to offer them so they could get some help to work with their practitioner if they have these problems, because there's not someone available in every state or country. And so um, I made those few courses we talked about, Jessica. So on my website, under the courses tab, there's a practitioner course for that covers CIFO and mold. It's called a minimalist approach to, to mold-related illness and CIFO. And then there's also a patient course that's on CIFO. I, I think there's a lot of good material out there for mold. At some point, I might create a, a patient mold course, but right now it re really focuses on CIFO because I saw a bigger need for, for information for that. Yeah. Um, and so everyone's welcome to look at that. I really tried to literally incorporate everything that I've compiled for information on, on treating yeast and fungal related issues in the past 20 years of my, back when we printed out articles, uh, I have, you know, binders full. I tried to give you all the references I have so that you can learn more about these conditions just because it affects so many different organ systems, including reproductive health. And I wanted to give you all of that in one, in, in one um, course altogether. So um, feel free to use those. And at some point we might, we might have more, but I think that at least we'll get, get everyone started for now. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Armie. Um, yeah. I have one more question that I wanted to just clarify, if you don't mind. Yes. So there's a lot of um, like symptom lists on yeast and CIFO out there. And I was just wondering your thoughts on these symptoms that I see listed a lot. Um, and, and Dr. Jacoby does actually list these in her um, SIBO course for Candida. Um, so like itchy ears um nasal congestion headaches sugar cravings and like an itchy throat do you see those symptoms yeah you know i i do i i, I tried in my course to put together i have a list of of symptoms that are based on the research and then symptoms that we see clinically and it sounds like um dr jacoby has a great list of those are more symptoms i see clinically than what i found research on but definitely i've had patients with the itchy ear issue where often i'll actually prescribe uh, chlorotrimazole eardrops. And so it tells it, you know, that proves that it's a fungal issue and it responds to that. And it has gotten better as we've treated their symptoms and sometimes use that yeast LDI sort of homeopathy based therapy. But that's the itchy ears is one I see. Um, nasal congestion, things like that can be related to yeast as well because it can affect all of our mucous membranes. And so we do see that as well as sugar cravings are tricky because it can be from different things. But certainly I've had. Um, uh, a significant number of patients where their sugar cravings get better when we treat the yeast and nothing has worked for their sugar cravings before, you know, in the past 30 years until we worked on that issue, because it's like, of course, there's psychological reasons why we eat certain things, but there's also biochemical reasons. And so we try to address that from both sides too. And I do see that not infrequently with my patients um, as part of the symptom picture. Um, and then I wanted to, I'm happy to answer any last questions, Jessica. And I wanted to say one more thing. Yeah. Go ahead, okay. Please. So, yeah. So, you know, I just, I found sort of like being um, a patient and a practitioner in integrative and natural medicine over the past 15, 20, 20 years, it can be overwhelming when you start going down some of these rabbit holes. And I just, I just at some point decided I refused to believe some of these issues were as complicated as they were being presented to be. That's why I named my course a minimalist approach. Again, I, I, I want my goal is to create approaches that are doable for the majority of people. And so it's good for all of us to learn and take classes. And I love 
doing the, the webinars that we have access to online now and everything. But sometimes I feel like we just go overboard in how we're, we, we pick this niche and I'm sure I'm, I'm guilty of the same thing. We pick a niche and then, you know, we tell people they have to do all these things. And my goal with the course was really just to give people resources. And so I, I would love feedback on that if I, if I took anyone down rabbit holes, but my, my goal is to, again, I refuse to believe things are as complicated as they're made out to be. So for example, with, with mold related illness or water damage buildings, it's not that complicated. I mean, it is, and it isn't like you have to you have to work on the exposure and you have to treat the internal colonization and potential toxin exposure, but it's not that different from how we, you know, Ayurvedic medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, functional medicine, naturopathic medicine. It's really not that different from the basics of how we've been treating people for everything, you know? So the information is good, but I also just, I'm hoping people don't get overwhelmed because I think if we go back to the basics, it's really the same for all of these things we're treating with some the devil is in the details type of information, yeah. but um, that's my overall approach. And I, I'm hoping to give information in that context. I absolutely love that. Thank you so much for saying that, because I, I do think that it can be, like you said, even as a practitioner, you can just go down these rabbit holes and just like, wow, there's so much to learn, but actually just getting those foundations in place of good health is going to be the same across the board for any any condition you know those, those the foundations that you outlined earlier of sleep and exercise and a generally anti-inflammatory diet um and then i you know i love this this idea of a minimalist approach so um thank you so much and i i can't wait to take your practitioner course i'm i'm going to take it so i'm very much looking forward to that that sounds great jessica and thanks again for having me and look forward to collaborating with you in the future so that's it thank you so much for listening if you want to find out more about what i do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it um you can head to my instagram page which is this underscore endolife um you can head to my website which is www.thisendolife.com and you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website um i've put the link in my show notes it's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis. As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. It really, truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to live better with endometriosis. This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world.